This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. Keep listening for actionable tips and tricks to incorporate eco-friendly practices into your daily life. We've been featured by Apple as the number one podcast for conscious consumers, and we can't wait to welcome you into our community of changemakers. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. We're the founders of Brightly.eco, the new platform for conscious consumers. We believe in supporting all creatures, great and small. And our team of experts show you how to live and shop responsibly by sharing world-changing lifestyle ideas, products, and more. To read show notes from Good Together and to browse all of the planet-friendly goodness that we feature, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And to help spread the word about the podcast, tap on this episode and share Good Together with your friends and family. A simple text message helps us grow and create change around the world. Whether it's just for a day trip or a week-long camping excursion, national parks serve as the perfect backdrop for your summertime adventure. But with annual visitation increasing by over 40 million people between 2009 and 2019, the park system and the animals that live within it are really starting to feel the impact of the human footprint. In today's episode, Lisa talks with Casey Morrissey from the travel tour company, Austin's Adventures. Casey has been guiding tour groups through national parks since she was six years old, making her the perfect person to tell us all about planning the perfect national park trip and how to do so with sustainability in mind. Let's get into it. Welcome to Good Together, listeners. Great to have you again for another episode of our uh, of our podcast. And today uh, we are talking with Casey Morrissey. Um, she is the president of Austin Adventures. And the topic of the episode is something we've actually been meaning to talk um, uh, to a guest speaker for over a year. Uh, we are talking today about national parks and how you can visit national parks in the U.S. and around the world in a sustainable and responsible way. Right. There's a lot of tips and tricks that Casey will be able to share with you. Um, but I want to first let Casey introduce herself, tell her, tell you guys all about what she's doing at Austin Adventures and kind of how she found herself uh, in a role as a president of Austin Adventures. Casey, why don't you introduce yourself? Great. Thank you, Lisa. And yeah, I, I'm the president of Austin Adventures. Uh, I've been I've had that designation, I guess. It's hard to get used to since about mm -hmm. 2019 or so, I guess. So um, yeah, all through the pandemic and now we're here today. So uh, I'm excited to be here on your podcast today. Great. So yeah, tell me, I, I'm pretty, I very well know that Austin Adventures is very much your family business, right? So tell me uh, more kind of how maybe you, uh, give us a background. I know, I think your father originally started the business, right? And um, I would be curious to see kind of your experience growing up. I imagine you've men, you've uh, visited plenty of national parks as you were growing up. <laughs> yeah, so Austin Adventures is an active tour operator. We're based in Billings, Montana. And my dad was the founder of Austin Adventures back when I was about six years old in 1995. 
And so I did have quite the upbringing as a kid in the adventure tourism business and got to try out all the trips. And I, you know, kind of felt like I was a guide on the trip. <laughs> I was probably the youngest designated guide on the team, but I was probably just getting more in the way than anything trying to help with these trips. So uh, we were, uh, yeah, we basically take people in and around the national parks here in the United States. And we also operate tours all over the world. And they're all inclusive where you show up and your accommodation is set, your guides are there to take care of you, your meals are all included. And we just go and tour these beautiful places and travel as sustainably as we possibly can while visiting these gems of America's national park system. And, you know, we have a lot of fun while we're doing it. So growing up in this business, it's been quite the upbringing. And I've gotten to see a lot of amazing places that, you know, maybe other kids didn't have that chance <laughs> and that childhood like I did growing up. So I feel pretty, pretty fortunate. Absolutely. Well, can you tell me a bit more to set up like, um, I actually was not that familiar with like tr uh, tourism in national parks. How big is it? I, again, you grown up with a business. So tell me, I might know the answer to this question, but I would love to hear your opinion. You know, is the popularity in national parks growing? Are we going back to nature or this is just kind of... Um, I'm wrong on that. <laughs> no, you're definitely right. National parks have been blowing up in popularity ever since. I mean, just for the last 10, 20, 30 years, you can just look at the visitation records of each of our national parks and people are getting really excited to uh, get outside and get outdoors. And this year, more than ever, uh, I think after being stuck inside for over a year and a half <laughs> due to COVID, a lot of people are getting out and exploring again. I know that the Yellowstone visitation records just came in a couple days ago, and they're at about 11% above where they were at May 2019 visitation records. So it's definitely getting more and more popular as the years goes on, which is very exciting um, and uh, pretty crazy. Like I just can't quite believe that there's that many people visiting these amazing places, but it's, it's pretty awesome in my opinion. Yeah, so uh, in September 2020, right, had more than 800,000 visits. Um, and that's just in one month, is that correct? Yeah, just in one month in Yellowstone, it sounds like. And that, that park was closed um, at the beginning of the pandemic, or I guess the early month, like March through May or so. So as soon as it opened back up, yeah, it just kept getting busier and busier as more and more people left their homes and started feeling more comfortable getting out and exploring. So. Uh, you know, mostly American visitors too, just because a lot of the country is still closed to people coming in. So um, yeah, it's just, you know, your neighbors getting out there and exploring these days. <laughs> exactly. So uh, let's say we are ready to go, right? We are one of those 800,000, like we are, uh, you know, as you just said, Americans slowly opening up. Um, uh, we are ready to plan our trip. So where do we start? Um, you know, a trip to a uh, to national park or from deciding you know which which how do you even choose which park to go to right um and let's yeah let's maybe go us through this thinking process of how do you choose a national park i know it's very subjective probably but where would you start oh my gosh yeah that is a great question and one that we get asked a lot here having so many different national park adventures and i think first of all you have to determine like where you know what have you always wanted to see i think probably one of the biggest 
things that people look at these days to go anywhere is social media. Like what destination have you fallen in love with the photos you're seeing online and things like that. So um, once you've found that place or have heard about a place that you really want to visit, let's say it's Yellowstone. I'm going to keep using this example because it's right here in my backyard being in Billings, Montana. Um, but your next step is just to start researching, you know, the what's the seasonality of that place and what time of year is the best if you want to be there when everyone else is there because it's peak season or maybe you want to go when there's not as many crowds. So you want to go in non-peak season times and what does that mean? Um, so, you know, there, a December visit to Yellowstone National Park with snow coaches and snow everywhere and some of the roads being closed is a lot different than a July visit to Yellowstone National Park when all of the roads are open, but also hundreds of thousands of people are visiting each month and you're sharing these, this beautiful place with other people. So um, you kind of start looking into that. And also, you know, you're just going to need to do a lot of research on where you're going to maybe camp or if you have an RV, where you're going to park your RV. If you're going to book a lodge, uh, that's another big piece is just figuring out where you're going to lay your head down at night. And that can be maybe one of the bigger pieces as these national parks get really, really busy is planning as far in advance as you possibly can, just because even this summer, planning a trip um, to our bigger national parks is going to prove to be a challenge at this point, just because everyone else has done the same thing this year. So we have a lot of people actually calling in right now, booking trips for next year already for 2022, because it's wow. just so up already this year. Yeah, yeah, you know, one of my challenges, um, you know, obviously um, I'm, I'm here in California, so we are pretty fortunate here with the uh, you know, nature, Yosemite, Lake Tahoe, uh, and Redwoods. It's it's gorgeous here. Um, I do love to camp sometimes too, although I have to admit, I'm like, I've been just a few times. And one of the main deterrents for me is really uh, how quickly, I'm not sure if it's state by state, so I would love to hear your opinion on that. Like in terms of reserving camp, campgrounds, or as you said, lodging, uh, for me, I'm not a very long-term planner for my personal life. So yeah, booking something a year in advance uh, seems really impossible for me. But tell tell me um, the reality, and maybe across states and across park, especially when we're talking about booking lodgings, uh, what is the standard? Uh, I know this year will be um, very outside of normal, very much outside of normal, but maybe generally. Yeah, I think, you know, a standard turnaround in a normal year, and this year definitely is anything but normal, we've found, <laughs> is, uh, you know, probably around, like, a lot of times in peak season for June through August, let's say, in most of our national parks out west here, um, you should be able to still find some lodging, like, three to six months out. Um, that being said, you can definitely get lucky in the three-month window, because People cancel their trips and people get other plans. A baseball tournament comes up for their kid and they end up having to go to that. So they cancel their reservation or whatever. Um, so definitely it's worth it if you are a last minute planner to keep checking because there are going to be cancellations by people. I've been, you know, canceling reservations left and right for even just our guide team going to and from places because there's so many you know, moving parts to even just this business alone. So multiply that times thousands of people and, you know, everyone's doing different things all over the place. So um, yeah, definitely don't be afraid to reach out to the hotels and get on a waiting list or uh, just keep watching um, the booking sites like 
uh, booking.com and things like that to see if anything opens up. And uh, same with campgrounds, the campground reservations, especially anything in the park specifically is going to book out pretty far in advance. So what we really encourage with people is, you know, if they are booking a little bit more last minute, anywhere between that zero to six month window, take a look at the surrounding communities, because a lot of times these places have really neat hotels are not necessarily the uh, historic national park hotels that you might be keen to stay in, but um, you know, they're still fairly convenient. They have good food options outside those parks and it might require a little bit more driving to and from the sites in the national parks, but they still have lots of nice amenities and uh, there is a nice place to lay your head down at night. And uh, oftentimes a lot more camping options and RV parks and things like that outside these parks as well. That's great. Yeah. Um, um, just to give you an idea of how of a, how much of a late planner, um, we still don't have plans for 4th of July and we are recording this episode like two weeks before. Uh, but yeah, like Yosemite area, of course, is always popular and we've been there. So that's one of the reasons we're also not in a rush. Um, but yeah, even Airbnbs uh, are booked even almost all around. And of course, as you can, the more you can give yourself time to plan and don't and not be like me, you will save money too in the long run as well. Uh, so let's talk about, again, planning a trip to a national park. I know you have a Yellowstone example. Some parks, of course, are bigger than others. How much of a time do you need to give yourself to kind of get a good idea of the park whether maybe you're okay with if you live not too far from the park right uh, like in our case with yosemite we've been there multiple times so we can come back and forth um but what if you you know you are actually traveling specific to another state pretty far away to a national park how much um of a time do you need to give yourself to really explore it yeah that's a great question um i would say if I am recommending anyone come visit national parks out in the West, at least, and I'd imagine this goes for any national park anywhere, you need at least four days to like really get a even decent feel for the place. And that's just a minimum. If you can spend five, six, seven days there, I think that's even more ideal. Um, it takes, you know, the first couple of days in a new place is always spent just trying to figure out where you're even at, like, where am I at on this map? What is there to do here? And things like that. So it takes a little bit of time to meet up with a few locals at the restaurants in the area, or maybe get on an, an activity. Maybe you want to go zip lining or rafting or something. And you talk to a guide in the area who says, Ooh, you need to go do this. Or, um, you know, just getting some of that local knowledge that you might not necessarily get if you were only there for a day or two to be able to implement later in your trip. So I think that at least, you know, four, four days, but you know, if you have a little bit more time, that's even better. And I always say, you know, less is more. So probably one of the biggest things we see with guests coming to us at Austin Adventures with like a predetermined itinerary or something they've researched in their head is they want to see every single site in one of these national parks in a very short amount of time. So um, just kind of picking a couple of big ones that you really have your heart set on, but leaving some free time in your itinerary as well, just to be able to really um, be able to take advantage of those moments that just pop up magically in travel, you know, that <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily plan, but they are the hidden trails that you did hear about from that rafting guide or that zip lining experience that you didn't necessarily book, but you find a spot open when you get there and your kids really want to do it. 
Um, so there's lots of cool things in these national parks, but even more beyond the national park borders as well, that you just got to kind of get to the area to see what's really there and to take advantage of, um, these amazing places and the amazing communities that support these places. So. Yeah, that's, that's a great tip. This is something I kind of always have to push back. Um, you know, obviously everyone has different vacation plans or availability in terms of days available to them. So especially in the U.S., you know, it's very different from European holidays and vacations that are usually at least 30 days long. Um, yeah, and the, so it's like, you know, if you only have five days uh, of vacation a year or, you know, hopefully more, uh, uh, yeah, you just generally just try to pack as much stuff as possible in those few days, but you will just be exhausted. Um, and so like, I always, I completely agree. I always say less is more. I'm just, I'm going to miss a few places and it will be a very conscious decision because otherwise uh, I, I don't want to see everything, but be miserable and tired in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah we call that needing a vacation from your vacation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And oh, honestly, no matter how much I try to be reasonable with myself, we still end up feeling a lot of times like that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, as we always say, with anything that comes to life, just be realistic with yourself. Um, you know, hey, if you want to see a new spot every single day, go for it. But we, you know, we shared with you what, uh, you know, Casey has to say and uh, my personal experience with that too. So let's talk about even more practical stuff in terms of what to bring. Of course, it will vary differently by season, by park, by what kind of activities, right, uh, you're planning on. Um, but tell us more about kind of general smart thinking uh, in terms of what to bring and not to bring to the park. Sure. Yeah. So Again, I don't think the uh, less is more approach is probably correct in this instance. <laughs> you do want to prepare and do your research and things like that ahead of time. Like you just mentioned, uh, you definitely want to look at seasonality and what you're going to be getting yourself into. Uh, if you're going down to, you know, over to the Rocky Mountains or over to the Sierra Nevada, like to Yosemite and things like that. Uh, you know, you're going to be dealing with afternoon thunderstorms and things like that. So bringing your rain gear would be a good idea. And just if you're also just like whatever activities you're doing, you know, you gotta, if you're going to be riding in the car the whole time and just kind of doing some window sightseeing, that's great. You probably don't need a lot of outdoor gear, but if you're going to be getting out and hiking or biking or whitewater rafting or things like that, you need to kind of start thinking through your packing list a little bit more as to what kinds of clothing you're going to bring. Um, also just, you know, when you're in bear country, thinking ahead to bring bear spray and things like that is something that I feel like a lot of people forget and they get to the place and they're like, oh yeah, what's this can of spray that all these people are carrying around? Um, so, you know, a little bit of research ahead of time would have educated someone on knowing that you should probably be carrying bear spray when you're hiking in bear country, just to, um, be a little bit safer on the hiking front, uh, when you are hiking on your own out there. And then um, also, you know, just weather type stuff when you're hiking down in Utah, let's say you're going to Arches or Canyonlands National Parks. I know this week down there, it's 105 degrees in the heat of the day. <laughs> I was just talking to our guides yesterday and they're like, whoa, this is, this is some heat we're dealing with here. So those guides are planning on getting guests up early in the morning, right at the crack of dawn and going out and exploring these places. And they're kind of killing two birds with one stone there with you know, getting up early uh, to beat the heat, but also beating the crowds is a big thing too. 
um, in these uh, amazing places that are very, very well loved. <laughs> so um, yeah, so kind of thinking through that thing, bringing enough water, and then also thinking through your food situation. Because once you get out into these national parks, a lot of times you're miles and miles away from uh, not only a restaurant or a grocery store, but also gas stations. So you want to pre-plan on gas and having enough ice to keep your water cold so you're not drinking hot water if you are out in the desert and things like that. So just kind of, you know, doing your research ahead of time of what your weather conditions are going to be like, what the seasonality is like, what the crowds are going to be like at the time of year you're going to be there, what activities you want to do, and then planning accordingly to all of that different research you're doing ahead of time will definitely help you prepare and not have a miserable vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that the, those are all great points. And before we move on and really talk about kind of environmental and sustainability aspects of traveling to National Park, um, I know, um, you know, renting equipment have been on the rise over the past probably decade um, because you know if you are not an avid uh, camper or national parks uh, visitor you know you probably like you were talking about bears right we have a bear canister I mean we live in California so we did buy it but you know if you are visiting bear country um, you know once uh, in a blue moon you probably you might not want to buy all of the things um can you give us a few options in, in terms of um, what considerations to to keep in mind before you buy uh, new equipment, right? Like camping backpacks, gear, and all of that stuff. And what if there are options uh, renting on-site or other websites? Yeah, so I would say there's definitely, you know, if you're going out to a national park and you're only going to be using this gear once, that's something to definitely think through is this, you know, the smartest sustainable um, choice that I can be making when it comes to buying this gear, just because the gear is expensive. It takes a lot of material to make and, and um, a lot of energy to produce and things like that. So to be able to, you know, kind of think through that decision and think through, am I going to be able to reuse this again? Uh, if so, yeah, maybe that's a great choice to be able to buy new um, and be able to reuse again in the future. But if this is kind of a one-time thing, you don't really know if you're going to like it or if you're going to do it again, it might be a much less expensive option and a much more sustainable option to, uh, buy either used gear at a, at a outdoor gear shop, all of these different, you know, communities outside the national parks have outdoor gear shops of, um, things that people no longer use or they're upgraded to new equipment or whatever. And it's great gear. It's just, you know, sitting, waiting to be bought up. Um, I am trying to think off the top of my head, if I know of any rental um, equipment, like I know there's rental equipment places for like kayaks and um, different things and paddle boards and things like that. Cause that's like the big equipment that you might not necessarily even have the room in your car to bring. Um, as far as like, clothing goes, you know, some of that stuff you might have to buy, <laughs> but there are clothing stores and things like that. And, um, you know, just like Patagonia says, like, buy your gear and just keep reusing it, wearing it, get it, send it in to get it fixed if a zipper breaks or something like that. Cause there's just, 
a lot of outdoor gear too that ends up in the wasteland every year. Exactly. Total bummer. So. Yeah. So, I mean, one suggestion I would have for our listeners, REI, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, it's present in probably ha- at least half of the states. I'm looking at their website right now, but they do rent back, backcountry snow gear, bear canisters that I've just mentioned, camping and hiking, climbing, cycling gear. So they have that option for you. Um, so that that's a great resource. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah. Yeah, and bear spray even, I keep seeing bear spray rental places keep popping up and I keep thinking that's the best business opportunity there ever was because no one ever actually uses bear spray. So you're just making, these people are probably making great money off of these unused bear spray canisters that get used and then for a hike and then they get returned, not used at the end of the hike. So there are, uh, I know there's a bear spray rental place in Canyon Village in Yellowstone National Park, for example, and I keep seeing them pop up kind of in the that's um, interesting. Well, <laughs> silly question because you basically don't need to spray yourself unless you like see a bear or you you have to spray yourself before going into the forest. Yeah, so bear spray is used mostly in grizzly bear country, and the, the spray isn't used for yourself; it's used for the bear. Oh, so, <laughs> okay. yeah. that's good to know. It's kind of like a really uh, intense pepper spray. So, um, you know, I've had family members who've accidentally sprayed themselves with it because the trigger goes off on accident on the side of your back. It is not a good feeling. So highly recommend not putting it on yourself if at all possible. But it is something that, you know, watch a few videos if you are going to use it. Because, you know, if you did get into a negative bear encounter in the backcountry, you would definitely, you know, it doesn't help to just have it on your hip. You definitely want to be able to know how to use it as well. So, um, but yeah, very good question for any listeners out there that don't know what air spray is or how to use it. Definitely do some research first. Yeah, I thought it was uh, something that will protect your like kind of mute uh, your natural smell and bear wouldn't smell. Oh um, yeah, no, yeah, you're opposite. not alone in thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. Uh, if we learn one thing from this podcast, that will that's super helpful. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, that is a great business opportunity because if you don't see a bear, and I think chances are higher, right, that you won't see a bear, actually. Um, it just goes to waste. Well, okay, let's talk about the environmental impact of this insane influx of t- tourists to national parks, uh, right? And especially wildlife, too. Um, do you kind of have any figures and stats, numbers, um, are we as tourists, um, are people visiting national parks generally more kind of environmentally aware um, than tourists perhaps visiting beaches and stuff? Uh, I, I, that would be my hope. If not, that's our goal from this podcast, to teach people how to, you know, visit national parks in the most responsible manner. Yeah, yeah, that's my hope too. I do think that the crowds visiting the national parks do tend to be a little bit more sustainable uh, oriented and or sustainability oriented and just wanting to, you know, the whole mission of the national parks, for example, is to preserve these places for future generations to enjoy. So just even the mission alone is talking about sustainability and preserving these places so that not only my, you know, I can enjoy these beautiful places, but also my grandkids someday can enjoy these places. I'm seeing them today. So um, that mission alone should in theory, attract a person who is more interested in um, long-term preservation of these types of um, environments and things like that. 
Um, yeah, so parking areas. Uh, let's talk about that. What, uh, yeah, I remember I was actually in Zion um, last August, also in kind of in the height of uh, in the middle of COVID. It was fairly safe there. Um, but yeah, in terms of like taking a vehicle or, you know, going with a group, what are there some kind of better alternatives besides just driving your car there? Yeah, it's it's getting really interesting. And I think it's this is one area of the national parks that's going to keep changing over time just because it's probably one of the biggest issues they are having these days with these parks being starting to become what they're calling over-visited or over-loved. <laughs> um, there's, basically what happened is the national park system you know, Yellowstone dates back to 1872. It's the world's first national park. And a lot of the different infrastructure in these national parks was built in the 50s and 60s during the mission, uh, using the Mission 66 initiative. And that was basically when the government in, put an influx of money, about a billion dollars in the national parks to create uh, road structures and parking areas and lodging and things like that. But for a much lesser number of visitors than what we're experiencing today. And unfortunately, like our, our government really has not pumped in the amount of money that these places need to be able to really be sustainable and handle the number of visitors that are coming in. So we are starting to see issues with parking areas and too many cars and not enough places to park. People are making parking areas in places that there are not supposed to be parking areas to be able to find a place to get out of their car to go see the sights and things like that. So it is becoming an issue. And I do like to see that the national parks are starting to take it pretty seriously and are creating things like shuttle systems. Like you said, in Zion, they have a shuttle system because uh, the parking really in that park, you're in that Canyon, right? So there really isn't where to park um, that works for um, hundreds of thousands of people visiting during the summer months. So they have that shuttle system, although, you know, shuttle system still has problems. You still might have to wait one or two hours at peak times of the day to get on that shuttle to go into the national park. So just some smart planning around that um, by going early or going a little bit later in the day outside of peak times can definitely be helpful. Also, just knowing how the shuttle system works. So you show up and aren't surprised that there is a shuttle and that you can't drive into the park. And um, that side of things, too, can also be just helpful to know about ahead of time. And um, I know they're doing a lot of things in lots of different national parks trying to battle <laughs> this ongoing visitation. Like even just this year, I know Glacier and Yosemite implemented ticketed entry systems where you have to get a ticket ahead of time on a certain date for whatever date you want to enter the park. So they are almost forcing people like you and me that maybe don't plan, plan. in advance yeah. to plan in advance so that you can actually get a ticket to enter in. Unless you want to go before six o'clock a.m. in the morning, because that is when the um, entry stations start to have staff. Um, so if you enter in before then, you can skip that. But I know a lot of people don't maybe want to start their morning that early. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, when yeah. I was in um, in Utah uh, in Zion, they they we had uh, and again good thing that we had at least a couple of days planned so we were pretty flexible because guess what the first time when we got to zion 
they didn't have tickets anymore. So we had to do something else with that one day. And again, we had like three days. Uh, so yeah, if we didn't have that one extra day, we literally drove 12 hours to, <laughs> to get to Zion and we could have left without actually seeing them. So uh, please be mindful of that. Uh, do the research. So let's talk about another kind of unfortunate popular issue where, um, you know, wildlife has to uh, deal um dealing with us humans right we in the age of smartphones and instagram people of, uh, often want to try and snap a picture with the wildlife um but uh, is it true it can be i mean it can be dangerous depending of course which wildlife we're talking about right but uh do you have any tips for how to view and interact with wildlife in the most responsible manner um, and maybe some common mistakes that people make when visiting national parks yeah, definitely. Um, being a Yellowstone guide myself and having <laughs> been in and around the Yellowstone area a lot, that's probably one of the most crazy things I see on a daily basis is just how people interact with wildlife. It honestly floors me. I just think people get so excited that they kind of lose their mind at times, <laughs> like parking in the middle of the road and, you know, jumping out of their car to take a picture of a bear and things like that. It's like, whoa, what are you doing? You know, but um, it's, I, you know, I still love it though. I love when people see, uh, you know, a kid on a trip of mine sees their first bison or when we see our first bear sighting and the kids in the van are like screeching because they're so excited. Um, so I love seeing that through people's eyes who are seeing that for the first time. And I think it's an incredible experience to have. You just, again, I keep preaching research ahead of time, but you do need to do a little bit of research, stop at a visitor center maybe and get some information on the wildlife or, um, you know, read the park newspaper or download the park newspaper on your phone before you enter in the park as well, because that oftentimes has good tips and tricks on how to interact with the park's wildlife as well. But kind of, you know, the rules that I'm passing on to my uh, guests on my trips are that elk and bison and things like that, you have to stay 25 yards away from. And the bigger predators like uh, bears and wolves they're recommending a hundred yards away, which is an entire football field length, which is a really long distance when you think about how far that really is. Um, I also practice what I call the golden rule of thumb, especially with the kids, which is you put your thumb out, your arm out in front of you and you stick your thumb up like you're giving someone a thumbs up and then you close one eye. And if you, that thumb can cover that animal with your one eye looking at your thumb, then you are far enough away. If you see the outside of that animal kind of on the outside of your thumb, then you're too close and you need to back up a little bit. <laughs> so yeah, that's my golden rule of thumb. That's a really easy way to know if you're too close or too far away to an animal and um, an easy one for kids to, to know and, uh, you know, really embrace as well. They love, you know, throwing the thumb out like, oh, we're too close, we're too far, you know. Um, yeah, and then I guess just investing in a pair of binoculars might be a good idea before a trip, uh, especially in a place with wildlife, just because you are, you know, supposed to be fairly decently far away from these things and being able to bring them closer to you through um, a t uh, either a scope or binoculars is a really good idea. And um, if you, you know, are really keen on seeing wildlife, you might not know where to go even in these national parks because they do tend to hang out in certain areas open valleys and things like that. So hiring even a day guide service or going on a multi-day trip with a tour operator or something like that can get you into places where local guides know where the wildlife is hanging out. They have the binoculars and the scopes. They know 
what the rules are around wildlife and how to keep you safe and things like that. So if there's any kind of uh, nervous feeling going into these uh, er these wild places with this wildlife, um, then, you know, going with an expert might be a good choice as well. Mm -hmm. Those are great tips. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's kind of try to leave our audience uh, with a few more tips in terms of being sustainable, right? And living as little of a footprint as possible um, upon our visit and upon our exit from the national park. What are some of your top tips and things we should think about um, in terms of that? Sure. So I would say, you know, whenever I work with any um, clients on a national park trip, I always ask, is there any way we can schedule this in non-peak season? Um, that's usually the first place I start. However, we work with a lot of families, so it really is, you know, June, July, August is the only times they can travel or, you know, spring break time is kind of the other big one or, you know, the holidays. So we work with what we can. Um, a lot of our adult trips take place in the uh, non-peak seasons, but if you're traveling on your own, if you can travel in a non-peak season, you're going to have a lot more options for accommodations, campgrounds, reservations, and just the user experience as well isn't going to be quite as crazy um, in these national parks just because it won't be nearly as busy and there's not going to be as much congestion on the roads and as many people taking up the parking lots and things like that. So if you can, schedule it outside of peak season. If not, that's okay. Um, you know, that there is a reason why people visit these places in peak season because it's the best time to be there. So that's totally fine. And the national parks are working on solutions to make the user and visitor uh, visitor experience more quality, you know? So we'll just keep rooting for them that they keep on creating shuttle systems and things like that to help us with, um, help us navigate those challenges. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So reducing footprint, I think just, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of show up with nothing in hand and, you know, forget your reusable water bottle at home. But again, if you're thinking about what you should pack ahead of time, thinking through things like bringing that reusable water bottle, or if you're a coffee drinker, bringing your travel mug, or even bringing your own utensils or a reusable straw, if you're a straw person, or even just those little like silicone snack pouches and things like that instead of um, Ziploc bags, that can be huge in uh, lessening your footprint in these places because so many different things come um, in plastic wrap and styrofoam boxes and things like that. So being able to eliminate that kind of stuff is a huge step in the right direction. And um, also a lot of the national parks these days have recycling programs, which I love, and that is awesome. And so maybe doing a little bit of research ahead of time, or even if you don't, just kind of keeping an eye out for those recycling bins around the national parks. A lot of times they're in and around the visitor centers or the lodges, and they do things like glass and plastic and aluminum cans and um, just keeping an eye out for that kind of stuff. Because chances are you probably are going to have a plastic bottle every now and then and being able to recycle that at least, that's okay if you do that, but recycling it is even better, you know, so that's a good tip. Um, and then also, you know, there's a lot of paper and things like that when it comes to national park planning with printing out resources or buying a map or um, getting the park maps at the entrance and things like that. So if you do a little bit of um, sleuthing ahead of time through the different apps out there and things like that, there's a lot of really neat apps for exploring uh, our national parks and things like that these days. I hardly even carry my own like regional knowledge books around even for guiding because I have a 
there's a plant app, there's a bird app, there's a wildlife app, you know, like any app you can think of, there's an app for that these days. And there's even a NPS app, a National Park Service app that just came out in April this year that um, has more than 400 national parks. There's 63 national parks like Yellowstone and Yosemite, but there's 423 national park sites, including like national monuments, national memorials, national seashores, all of those different national sites. Over 400 of them have advice and tips and places to go and accessibility information and things like that um, in this National Park Service app. And it's actually really helpful. I tried to use it in Yellowstone just to see if it gave me any new information or advice that I didn't know. And it had a couple of good tips, even for someone who knows that park really well. So highly recommend downloading that. It also has interactive maps, which is awesome. And a lot of it can be downloaded ahead of time. So it's available online or offline, I mean, so that, you know, with these places that oftentimes don't have great cell service, <laughs> you can still access that information as you're driving through. So that's a yeah. great tip. I do love uh, an old school printout map, but I'm literally just downloading that app right now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it is a great, um, yeah, it's a great thing to, ha- to have like, yeah, the official app for 420, um, more than 420 parks. That's amazing. So yeah, let's get to the last question um, of this episode. You've talked about, you know, recycling. I know recycling is super important to you. Uh, you gave us so many amazing tips. Um, but I'm curious about what specifically excites you the most about ethical and sustainable movement right now. And again, you know, by ethical and sustainable, we are, it's a very kind of a general term. Uh, you can kind of talk as how it relates in, um, to national parks and all the amazing work you guys are doing. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I love that there are steps being taken towards ethical and sustainable movements in these places just because my job and my livelihood literally depend on tourism and getting people out to see these amazing places. So I, for one, really have a stake in making sure these national parks stick around for future generations to enjoy because I want my family business to be able to keep taking people to these places for generations to come. So um, so I'm pretty excited and stoked to see that the sustainable movement uh, is definitely moving in the right direction, in my opinion. I think Maybe it's starting a little bit late, like we're kind of dealing with a little bit of a crisis in our national parks right now with overvisitation, which is um, too bad. But it's, you know, it's it's still pushing us faster in the right direction that we want to go. Um, the different officials and administrators in the national parks and the government are starting to see like, all right, we need to figure this out now. You know, like it's it's time. So it's good to see that that's happening. And they're, you know, it might be unfortunate for the non-planners, but seeing things like the uh, caps coming on to the national, like there could be caps coming into visitors coming into the national parks, even in arches right now, they're stopping people at the entrance at around 10 o'clock AM when a certain number of cars have come in, because there's just not enough room for more people to be in that park on that road system. Um, And the ticketed system, ticketed entry for like Yosemite and Glacier and even like Yellowstone has um, just debuted its autonomous driverless shuttles, <laughs> which is pretty exciting. Uh, they're electric shuttles over in Yellowstone National Park. They have a couple that are being tested out to see how those work. And um, things like that to me are just so exciting because it's showing that we are moving in the right direction towards uh, a more sustainable future for these national parks. And um, that might mean 
visitation going down a little bit to be able to, uh, for these national parks to be able to handle uh, the number of visitors that it has resources wise, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, um, just having smarter resources and um, smarter travelers coming into these places that are prepared. Uh, they've done their research and they know what they're getting into. And, um, you know, if you don't feel comfortable looking into a tour operator or someone who can bring you into these national parks that does know how to operate the systems. And, um, and you know, even if you're a last minute planner, that's the other thing, uh, Lisa, is you can always reach out to a tour, tour operator because we do plan a year and a half in advance and we do book those rooms far out. So we hold on to them a while. So you can always, you know, reach out and say, Hey, <laughs> you got hey. anything available for next week? <laughs> you mm -hmm. never know. So, that's but, awesome. Uh, yeah. But I'm just, you know, the, the public lands are definitely facing a bit of a crisis in popularity. So I think that it's, I, I'm encouraged that the National Park Service and other entities are recognizing that there are issues resulting from over-visitation and we're really starting to take proactive steps towards protecting these much-loved places. So that gives me a sense of relief and I'm pretty, pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's a great place to leave our listeners at on a very hopeful and exciting note. It's great that, um, you know, we are all so excited to visit our national treasures, national parks. And it's uh, great to hear all of the exciting developments that are taking there with the environment and nature in mind. Well, Casey, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. And thank you so much for all of your tips. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me on Brightly today. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. As always, you can get show notes and explore lots more content related to all things eco-friendly living by checking out brightly.eco slash podcast. And don't forget to join in on the conversation that's happening on our Facebook group. Simply search Good Together Ethical Shopping and it'll come up. You can also leave us a question through voicemail. The link is on brightly.eco slash podcast. If you're into social media, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and all of the channels. Our username is brightly.eco. Finally, we want to leave you with a reminder. Every day is a chance for you to create change, and you're already covered for today since you joined us here on the podcast. Stay kind and live brightly. <laughs>